Take a turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Thank Reverend Kelly for leading in the service for us. Appreciate the help. It's good to see each of you here this evening, and trust the Lord will continue to meet with us as we look now to His Word. And I, I want to underline the invitation given by Reverend Kelly for you to join with us, especially for those of you visiting, but to all of you here tonight, we, we encourage the fellowship of the saints after our services. Luke chapter 11. We have spent some time carefully going through the first 13 verses. We come now to verse 14, and in contrast with the opening 13 verses, which took us six weeks to get through, we're going to endeavor to get through the verses 14 through 28 tonight with the help of the Lord. So this is a very insightful passage of God's Word. And I trust trust the Lord will open it up to us and give us help in understanding it this evening. Let's hear the Word of God, Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Speaking here of Jesus, it says, And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. And some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first." It came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God, and keep it. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Beloved, let's seek the Lord again. Let's ask for his help and his favor. Let's look to him for that which only he can do in this part of our service. 
God, we thank Thee for the victory that there is in Jesus Christ. We're thankful that He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We're thankful that He has come to break the chains that fetter sinners. He's come to loose the captives. He's come to set them free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And many of us here tonight rejoice in Thy sovereign work upon our hearts in liberating us and bringing us to an understanding of what we have in Jesus Christ. We look to Him as the only Savior, and we preach Him as the only Redeemer. And we recognize that there is none other, there is none other under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Tonight, Lord, as we continue before Thee, give us help, give us power, give us all the understanding that we need. God, I pray, enlighten the minds of those before me. This has some unfamiliar passages, perhaps, unfamiliar uh, sentences and thoughts. Maybe some here have not given much consideration to them. God, illuminate the mind. Give clarity to the preacher. And above all, give the Holy Spirit to enlighten the heart. So feed thy sheep and thy lambs and save those that are yet to be gathered in. So come, blessed Lord Jesus, and do overcome the strong man in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the context of first century Israel, beloved, the fact that needed to be established in the minds of the Jews was that this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all the credentials and expectations of the promised Messiah. They were looking, at least they professed, to look for one that was promised to them in the Old Testament Scriptures, and they were endeavoring to see that day come and arrive. So when Jesus arrives, there is this endeavoring of the people to determine, is this the one that has been promised? And in terms of arguing that position and laying out that fact that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed that promised Messiah, this is one of the clearest passages in terms of his own testimony of fulfilling that place. The arguments to suggest that he is not Messiah are exposed in this text. Doubters are forced to acknowledge, even with their reluctance to believe in him, they are forced to acknowledge that what Jesus is doing is supernatural. They can't deny it. They are hemmed in. They can't reject that the miracles are taking place. They can't say that something else is going on. They know that something supernatural is going on. And since they are so reluctant to believe in him, the conclusion that they are left with, the statement they are brought to is, it must be by Satan. And yet, they knew early on, we're getting far into the ministry of Christ now at this stage, but they knew early on, they knew early on that there was a supernatural power working in and through Jesus Christ. You remember in John chapter 3, which comes early in the ministry of Jesus Christ, familiar that passage is to many of us, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he confesses as a leader of the religious elite, he comes and he says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And in that testimony, in that declaration, Nicodemus is showing that they're almost at the point, there's reluctance no doubt still in their hearts, but they're almost at the point of recognizing this is the Messiah. He is a teacher come from God. And here he, he is himself, Nicodemus that is, 
a teacher of the people, recognizing a higher teacher than him. He has come. And you can see in that one statement made early on in the ministry of Christ, the insight to the fact that Jesus was perfectly meeting the expectations that they ought to have had. His miracles were validating his message. See what he says. Thou art a teacher come from God, for because no man can do these miracles. The miracles are validating the message. The miracles are arousing our attention so that we listen to what you are saying and recognize that you're the one that God promised to send. That's what he's beginning to see. That is what he is wrestling with. Remember, miracles were never an end in and of themselves. They were intended to make people listen. For it is not the miracle that delivers sinners. It is the message. Which brings us back to our passage. Jesus says, in verse 23 of our passage tonight, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And what I want you to understand is this position that the Jews found themselves in early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ and continuing through his ministry, they found themselves in this place where they were endeavoring by all their might and power to resist the evidence that was before them. And they have now come to a point where they can no longer in any fashion, in fact, there's nowhere in the Gospels where they endeavor to suggest that the miracles were not miracles, that there was some trickery involved. It was so clear, it was so evident that something supernatural is going on. But they've come to this point where they're prepared to declare Him as doing these works by the power of of Satan. And Jesus stands before them in verse 23, he that is not with me is against me. You need to realize that all your religiosity, even your opposition to Satan, even your recognition of his evil, doesn't mean you're on the right side. You're not defined as being a child of God simply by what you're against. The question is, what are you for? Or, as he puts it here, who are you with? Who are you with? And I ask you tonight, are you with Jesus Christ? How do you define that? He that is not with me is against me. What does it mean to be with him? Do you know that you're with him? If you're not with Him, you need to define, you need to be clear in your mind what it means to be with Jesus Christ. Because if you're not, whatever else you may profess, whatever else you may espouse or declare in terms of credentials, when we're thinking about Paul this morning, it will not stand. What does it mean to be with Jesus? What we learn then is that there's no neutral ground. No place to hide, no ability to say that, well, I'm against all of these things. You have to be for Him, wholeheartedly, absolutely, and entirely. And so tonight, we're considering this passage under the title, No Neutral Ground with Jesus. No Neutral Ground with Jesus. 
You're either with them or against them. And that divides this congregation. It divides this congregation tonight. It divides not only this congregation, it divides all of humanity. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. It's quite simple. Note with me, first of all here, that he expels devils. He expels devils. Verse 14 through 16. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. And some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. Note here, first of all, the record of this work. The record of this work. By this stage, we are not surprised to find Jesus casting out devils. I mean, if we're reading through the gospel and we're paying attention to what it's saying to us, we're not, we're not surprised that here he is casting out a devil. You go back to Luke chapter 8, you remember the demoniac of Gadara? He didn't just have one devil, he had so many devils he was called legion. And Christ came with such ease, such ease, cast them all out. The entire community had endeavored to help this man. They had sought to deliver him and chain him and do whatever they could to protect himself from himself as well as himself from all of them. But nothing could be done, and Jesus, with a word, delivers him. This man possessed with many devils. Not only had Jesus the power to cast out many devils, he had the power to actually give to his disciples, his apostles, Luke 9 verse 1, the power to do the same, to have power over devils. So we're not surprised. We read verse 14. He was casting out a devil. It's almost stated in a way as like matter of fact. Of course he was casting out a devil. This is what he did. His day was filled with this kind of activity. So it's not unusual. And the passage doesn't even dwell on the casting out of the devil. It kind of moves on very quickly because the importance of this. Since this was going on all of the time, the importance here is what follows. The revelation that comes as a result of this particular miracle. We're told in verse 14 that the devil had such an influence upon the man that it made him dumb. That is, he was incapable of speech. I need to underline that should someone have a problem with speech that doesn't immediately say or declare that the devil is behind that. I think that's relatively unusual, but it was the case here. But we do learn from this that such is demonic influence that it it can so overtake a man that it, that it controls some of his faculties. There are other evidences of this throughout the Gospels, but you see it here in reference to speech. Their faculties are affected, the faculties that are God-given, and the faculties that have a purpose given by God for a, a particular end. God has given men and women and boys and girls speech, the blessing of speech, so that they might speak His praises. So while you may look at this and think, I've never actually seen this, not aware of having ever met any individual that was dumb as a result of a demonic spirit that took possession of them or was influencing them, yet at the same time, it may be more common than you realize. Anyone who stands in the house of God without the ability to praise God, why is that so? Why is it that someone could stand in the house of God and not bless and praise God? Is that not satanic activity? Is that not the control of the devil over their life very often? God has given them the tongue. 
the ability to praise Him, that is its most lofty employment, and they refuse to use it in that way. We, we see it, beloved. I don't know, I don't, I don't gaze, I don't analyze all of your faces. Sometimes I look down, but maybe at times that's too discouraging, so I don't do it too often. I'm only joking. You're good here. You do sing out to the Lord, which is encouraging. But perhaps among you there are some that I don't see. And there isn't this clear expression of joy and praise in the house of God. You're bored. You're uninterested. You're dumb. Your speech does not go up in songs to Christ. You have him made dumb. And here's what you need. You need a heart surgery by the Spirit of God. You need to be regenerated. You need a change of life. We sang Psalm 40 this morning, which David declares he, he is accounting his experience of being lifted up out of a horrible pit and out of the Mary clay, and he has set me upon a rock and established my goings, and he has put a new song in my mouth, even praises to our God that many shall see and fear and trust in the Lord. He goes on then to speak of many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I should declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. The speech, the man's speech gets transformed by God's intervention in the life. So this is the record of the work given here in verse 14. Christ comes to a man who is possessed with the devil. He is demonized. And that has resulted in him being incapable of speech. And it's well known by everyone. Everyone's aware of it. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. So I want us then to consider the result of this work. First of all, some wondered. That is to say, they marveled. It is recorded by some that, well, they believe that the Jews had an idea that while there were some that engaged in exorcisms, that it was impossible to exorcise a demon that had such a hold on a man that he was incapable of speech, that because he wasn't able to actually speak the, the devil or show his desire for his eradication or removal, that therefore they were beyond hope or help. And so that may be the reason why the people are so full of wonder, because exorcisms went on, it was practiced, the, the Jews did it, we, we read of them in Acts chapter 19, some of the Jews that went around, the vagabond Jews are called, that is the traveling Jews that went around engaging in exorcisms, delivering people. So there were some that were given to this. But here, the people are surprised. This is unusual. They're not expecting this man to be delivered. And Jesus is able to do it. And so they wonder. They marvel. Some, rather than wonder, were told they distorted. Some distorted. Because what we're told in verse 15 is that he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. They ascribe the work to Beelzebub, a title used in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3, to refer to the god of Ekron. It's a Canaanitish god, especially with the Philistines. And so with the passage of time, the Jews had begun to 
utilize this title not just with reference specifically to that God of the Philistines, but it had morphed over time to just a title given to the chief of devils, Satan himself. And so here, these individuals, they say, this is how he's doing it. This is, I want you to think about what they're doing here. They're ascribing the work of God to Satan. Now imagine for a moment, I mean, we have laws around, or at least some rules and contexts around things like plagiarism. And we get upset, uh, whether it's plagiarism itself or, some, or, or the fraud. Some say it's not so much plagiarism that's the issue. It's the fraud that you're passing it off as uh, yours. So it's fraudulent in that way. And, and we don't like it. We don't like it in any context. And so there, there, there are, in some contexts, especially in education and other formats, there, there, there's a cost, there's a penalty to such a thing. It's a, it's a form of, it's not blasphemy because it's not against God, but, but you can see the crime in it. Here, however, they are misascribing. They are blaspheming by saying what God has done is the handiwork of, of Satan. And so the crime of verse 15 is great. It is not to something that was like the people who wandered but didn't believe. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's a serious sin that they are guilty of here. They are distorting the reality of what is happening. And then we're told some tempted. Verse 16, others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. Here are those who are amused by the miracles and cloak their unbelief in a desire for more evidence. But in each instance, whether it's those that stand by and wonder, those that distort, or those that tempt him, they're all, they're all not believing. There's a lack of faith here. Now, this is enlightening. It, it is not sufficient to admire. Now, I understand, verse 15, you're going to know that's wrong, right? To ascribe the work of God to the devil, or vice versa, is wrong. That, and you would say, I would never do that. But verse 14 and 16 may apply to you. You may be sitting here and say, I just need more evidence. I need more proof. Give us another sign. And you're cloaking your unbelief. You're trying to say the reason you don't believe is planted squarely on God. And it's up to Him to make me believe. Others of you, perhaps, you, you wonder. Even perhaps a sense of admiration. You admire what is going on. You're, you're interested in it. But all of this, as I say, it's all a cloak for unbelief. Bottom line, you don't believe. And you come back to the text in verse 23 and you ask yourself, what does it mean to believe? It is to align yourself with Jesus Christ. It is to be with Him. Body, soul, spirit, the whole being aligning with Christ. It's not to stand in church every Lord's Day or any other occasion and, and wonder and be sentimentally moved by the singing or even the preaching or other aspects of the worship of God. There has to be an allegiance. There has to be a stepping out and owning Christ. That's not what happens here. 
So he expels devils. Secondly, he exposes doubters. He exposes doubters. Verse 17 and following begins to this section where he exposes the doubters. And it begins in verse 17, but he knowing their thoughts. The crowd is there. There's much noise. The ambient sounds make it almost impossible to discern exactly what's being said, but nothing is hid from Jesus Christ. Nothing is hidden from Jesus Christ. He knows the thoughts. He knows what's going on in your heart and mind. He missed nothing. And so he's aware of the objections and unreasonable thinking of those around him. And so he begins to deal with the unbelief. First, he exposes them for their lack of rationality. Verses 17 and 18. He, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? But ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Verse 17 is a self-evident statement. No one's going to deny what he says in verse 17. No one. Everyone knows this is true. That a kingdom divided itself is brought to desolation. It will be brought to destruction. A house divided against itself cannot stand. No one would deny that. No one would reject it. No one would say, I disagree. We need to remember that even in terms of our homes, our church, our nation. Great division that is ongoing always leads to destruction. There are no exceptions. There's great division in your family and you're not working out to resolve it. It will lead to destruction of the relationships, perhaps irreparably. Don't let it go on. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Deal with it as best as you can. So it is with the church. Don't allow things to go on unresolved. Ill will. Ill feeling. Get it resolved. Feelings work to the destruction of the body of Christ. As we watch on in our nation, we plead that God would be merciful to deliver it from certain destruction if division continues as it has been. So then in verse 18, Jesus takes the argument upon which we all agree and applies it to the situation. If a kingdom divided against itself is sure to fall, why then would Satan oppose his own work? If you're right, then Satan works through me to destroy his own kingdom. Everyone knows this man has a devil. That's not in denial. They're not diminishing the reality of the initial circumstances of the individual. Everyone knows he was possessed with the devil and everyone knows that he was dumb. This is widely and broadly known. And the people are aware and they say that man's possessed with the devil. It's taken away from him the ability to speak. This is Satan's work. Christ comes along gives deliverance, and they say, Satan has done this. 
So Jesus turns the whole thing around against them and exposes them, as we've said, for their lack of rationality. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? How is it possible? I imagine that Satan is capable of doing the exception of presenting the odd occasion where he will work against his own kingdom in order to deceive. I think he would be capable of that for certain. But the thing with Jesus Christ is this is not a one-off. This is happening all of the time. Everywhere you go, there are demon-possessed people that are being liberated and delivered. Every single day this is happening by the hundreds, perhaps by the thousands. And so if you're to trace his ministry as his accusers and haters were, following him wherever he was, it doesn't stand to reason. All these people that publicly are known to be possessed by demons, who in some cases have been cast out of their very communities and families, and I come along and deliver them, you're saying that this is the work of Satan? So you're saying that right now through me, Satan is destroying his own kingdom. Everything he's built. It doesn't stand to reason. Why would he undo all of his work? If we agree in this truism, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, then you cannot say, it is not reasonable to say, Satan is in the business of destroying his own kingdom. So you're forced to believe the truth that the Messiah has come. So he exposes them for their lack of rationality. Also, he exposes them for their lack of consistency. Verse 19, And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges." In this instance, it's like Jesus says, okay, for the sake of argument, for the sake of argument, I'll concede the point. I am doing this by the power of Satan. If that is the case, by whom do your sons cast demons out? That is, those of you that are, and I think there may be a particular attention here upon some of the rabbis and some others that Obviously, you had these individuals within the Jewish community that were set apart or were known for, as I've said already, exorcisms. I've already mentioned Acts 19 as, as evidence of that. And so they, they, they had these people. These were people that were believed to be doing the work of God. And they weren't always successful, as Acts 19 shows. In fact, Acts 19 shows us... In fact, turn there for a minute. Maybe it would be good for us just to go there because it would be... Pointless for me to keep going on about something you're maybe not familiar with. Acts 19. Reading from verse 11. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So, very special, unusual workings of the Spirit at this season through Paul. Then, certain of the vagabond Jews 
exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. I want you to get the point here. They are known as exorcists. If they were very successful, then they would have no need to look for other methodology. The fact of the matter was that in most cases they were unable to do what they were endeavoring to do, at least sufficiently that they were frustrated. And when they see Paul being so successful, they look for the formula. What's the formula? Let's follow the formula. And so they say, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Maybe this will get us more success. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It's very very interesting, isn't it? They go in there so confident, and (laughs) it's like, we don't even know who you are. What are you doing here? You know, the, the, the power, the spiritual power of Jesus, and the spiritual power of Paul was such that they were feared by the demons. Someone else comes in and it's like, what are you even trying to do? Come on. And they just, they they chase them out of there. They're unsuccessful. Formula, of course, doesn't work because that's not what it's all about. But you get the point. You get the point that they were exorcists. These are the sons that are being referred to. This type of person back in Luke chapter 11. And our Lord is asking then, okay, you, you, you attribute any success in these Jewish exorcists You attribute success to being the work of God. And I do the same successfully, and you attribute it to Satan. How so? How so? So he exposes them for their lack of consistency. This is not consistent. You're you're not staying consistent. You say, they're doing the work of God, but I'm not doing the same thing. Then he exposes them for their lack of sincerity. He exposes them for their lack of sincerity. Verse 20. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's he mean here? The reference to the finger of God was to bring to their minds a very well-known historical event, namely the plagues upon Egypt. Go back to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. You remember in the early part, Pharaoh seeks out his magicians to replicate the work that was being done by Moses and Aaron. So he calls for them and gathers them to to do do the same thing. And 
if they had some measure of success in that, if they were, of course his goal is, well, if they can do it, then, then there's nothing special about this. My magician can do the same. When we come to Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, The Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. And all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. What they're saying is, what do they mean this is the finger of God? They, they are drawing to attention, they are recognizing, and they're endeavoring to communicate to Pharaoh, listen, what's going on here is divine. God is here manifesting His power, manifesting His presence. This is the finger of God. God is touching the earth. God has come. That's what they're saying. And Jesus, using this language in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, when He says, but if I were the finger of God, what He is saying is, you're seeing God. You're seeing God do works, do miracles, manifesting Himself in such an evident fashion, just as even the Egyptian magicians that had no vested interest in supporting Jehovah and His people, they had to acknowledge God is here. And here, Jesus is saying, God is manifesting His power. And He is doing so in casting out devils. There is no doubt, there is no doubt that the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if, if the Egyptian magicians could see that God had come, how come in this instance you, so-called spiritual, can't see that God has come? How come you can't see it? They are not being sincere. They know that God has come. That's what Nicodemus said. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. This isn't up for debate. You're not being sincere. You know that God has come. You know that he has manifested himself here and that his kingdom has come upon you. That is, everything promised is right here at the door. It's decision time, Israel. It's decision time. Are you going to accept your Messiah? Are you going to believe the one that the Lord promised would come? Are you? The kingdom has come upon you. Will you enter in? Oh, you know, it grieves the heart to see such rejection. You see people who profess to love God, but would not enter in. 
That brings us thirdly to consider. He explains deliverance. Here Jesus explains deliverance. Verse 21 through 26. And as he explains deliverance, I want us to see here the various ways in which he does so. And, well, I'll say nothing more at this point. But note with me, first of all, his capability to deliver. His capability to deliver. Verse 21 and 22. Continuing on, Jesus says, When a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. So the imagery here is clear. Jesus is saying that there's one that is strong. Here he refers to Satan. Satan is working. He is armed. So the Lord Jesus is acknowledging that Satan is strong. Let us not be ignorant of that. He is strong. He is strong to the degree that he has little to fear. And he is armed. He keeps his palace, that is his, his kingdom, his, his little area, and his goods are in peace. His goods being the souls of men. His goods are like that man referred to in verse 14, the man that was taken over by the devil and was dumb. He, he is the goods of the strong man. And he is kept. And the Lord says then, that what happens, and of course he's referring to himself, when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor when he trusted and divideth his spoils. Satan then has a kingdom. You don't have to be a Satan worshiper to be a part of it. You don't have to be engaged in all sorts of false spiritual work. You just simply have to reject Jesus Christ. You, you need to be not in his control, not in his care. He has them at peace. His goods are in peace. Think of that, the souls of men being at peace. They're at peace with their condition. While he has them, they don't care. I mean, that's, that's what you see. And some of you don't realize this because maybe you don't evangelize a whole lot, but when you start talking to people, you realize they're completely content without Jesus Christ. Satan knows exactly how to keep them whether it be by riches, pleasure, relationships, isolation, whatever it is. He will feed your ego as well as your self-pity, anything to keep you at peace. And this is the vast majority of men. This is the world into which Christ came. It's the world in which we continue to live. There's a strong man who is armed, who keeps his palace, and his goods are in peace. They live completely at ease. But, but, when a stronger than he shall come upon him. And Jesus saying, this is what you're seeing. You are seeing. You're seeing this. You've lived for years under this awareness of, of dominion of Satan, the power of Satan, the influence of Satan. You, you, you've been completely aware of it. There's enough evidence of it. It seems like there were demon-possessed people, demonized people all over the land, certainly in Galilee. And Jesus comes and in a couple of years, he almost eradicates it all. 
He expunges the land of all this satanic activity, at least largely as far as it's, the record is given here. And he comes upon the strong man. He overcomes him and takes from him all his armor when he trusts and divided the spoils. Here's a simple reality. Jesus Christ has come to deliver men. To deliver men. Paul deals with this in Colossians 2, verse 15, where he refers to Jesus Christ as having spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That's the final work of Jesus Christ. It's referred to in 1 John 3, verse 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy, to overcome, to eradicate, to eliminate to some degree the work of Satan as he faced it. So this is what the men are seeing. Everyone knows it. There's no denial. His capability to deliver. Secondly, his companions in deliverance. Who are his companions in deliverance? Verse 23. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Here we come to what I think is one of the more clarifying texts in this whole passage. The question, of course, is what does it mean to gather or scatter? There are different ideas. Some think it's kind of a harvest scene and it's gathering in the harvest and so on. But the vast majority see this as a shepherd's work. The shepherd is gathering or there are those that are against the shepherd and they scatter the flock. And the indication here is that this shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is gathering people onto himself. But he's not doing it in isolation. He has companions. He has companions who gather with him. And he has enemies that scatter. And so, you know, you know that you're his when you're a companion and you're engaged in the business of gathering. How do you know that you're with Jesus Christ? You gather rather than scatter. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And the, 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 the structure of it is such that it's not that you have to be purposefully engaged in the scattering work. It's the fact that if you're not purposely engaged in the gathering work, then you're scattering. In other words, there has to be a positive evidence. It's not just that, this, that the Lord Jesus came into the world so that people stop scattering, actively opposing. There were lots of people who weren't actively opposing. They weren't actively engaged in demonic worship and all sorts of false ideas. They, they had a name to live, but they were dead. And that deadness was sufficient so that they're scattering because they're not gathering. Now, beloved, I was reading this and thinking about it, and I was convicted. Convicted as I was reminded afresh that it is not enough just to not be in the business of doing Satan's work. You're doing Satan's work. You're opposing Christ if you're not actively supporting the purpose of our Lord. You have to be gathering. If you're not gathering, you're scattering. And Jesus says, this is what it means. This is what it means to be with me. Are you with me? You know, if you're out in a battle in an army, and you're a soldier there, and you said, I'm with you, general. I'm with you. But when the battle rages, you're sitting doing nothing. Are you really with him? Are you? No, you're not. 
No, you're not. And that's the imagery. You, you can't say I'm on the right side. So I'm not over there, therefore I'm okay. You have to be on the right side doing the right work. Gathering. Beloved, if you're not gathering, if you cannot see, if you cannot see that men, and this goes to what we were dealing with on Wednesday night, if you cannot see that men perish and have a burden for their souls, are you really, are you really Christ's? Spurgeon had it right about if you're not going to the mission field, then you are the mission field. There isn't a burden for souls, a desire to gather. So Christ has companions in his deliverance. Yes, he has the power. He is the stronger than the strong man. He overcomes all the power is his, but he has a people who are engaged in this work as well. And so he is reminding these religious people standing around them, Pharisees included, and everyone there, he's reminding them, if you're not with me, if you're not engaged in the work I'm about, then you're against me. And some of you are standing there and you're wondering. You like watching the miracles. You're all enamored by everything that's going on. You would hate it for me to disappear because I'm daily entertainment for you. But there isn't this real desire to gather, to be about his business, to be really with him. Sometimes I preach and, you know, I go away and think, maybe I offended someone. <laughs> and then I read passages like this and think, man, the Lord was offending people all of the time. He's making it plain what it means to be a true disciple of His. A person either fights against evil or he's part of the evil. It's often been quoted, usually wrongly attributed, but quoted anyway, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, Jesus won't tolerate it. He won't tolerate so-called good men doing nothing. He won't. He can't stand there and have all the garb have all the speech, have all the religiosity. You can't stand there and wonder at all my great miracles. You can't look at me and be thankful because I delivered your son. You need to be with me. No neutrality. No middle ground. There's no easy way here. There's no easy way. They're either for Christ or against Him. Then also the counterfeit deliverance. The counterfeit deliverance. Verse 24 through 26. Strange verses in some ways. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Or, pardon me, and finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. John Gill takes this to be a reflection of 
the Jewish religion confronting Jesus Christ. It had become a counterfeit religion. And Jesus seems to indicate that Satan left them for a while. He goes into dry places, Gentile regions. But now he's coming back. He comes back to a people that are swept and garnished. They have all the exterior religion. They have external reformation. They're white at sepulchers. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. 2 Timothy 3, 5. And that perspective fits if you read the parallel portion in Matthew chapter 12, where here... It says, Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Matthew records those additional words. This is a wicked generation. This is what's happening to you. Satan was driven out. You were given the oracles of God. That had a sanctifying good leavening influence upon the nation. So Satan is actively working then in other regions and other Gentile areas, but he is going to come in. He's going to find everything all swept and garnished. Everything looks well, but he's going to come, and he's going to come with more power. Seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. They are more under the dominion of Satan than they ever were. Israel. And all their unbelief. It's one thing to murmur at the depiction of Christ in, for example, the manna. To murmur being bored with it. But it's another thing to have the very bread of God standing before you and reject them. The Jews wanted a Christless religion, and they got a Christless religion. And so they had no power. They have no power. No power to really walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Because the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Not some God of their own imagination, or as Jesus says in John 8, ye are of your father the devil. So they have established then a counterfeit deliverance. That's what had happened. The religion of the day, the Judaism of the first century, and that which continues even to our present day, is a Christless religion. And it proposes a counterfeit deliverance. Come to us, we'll sweep and garnish you. We'll give you the law, give you all the rites and ceremonies, bring you into all the nuts and bolts of our religion, but, as Jesus said of the Jewish missionaries, they go out to find 
and those that they convert are made even more the children of hell than they were before they had those missionaries come to them. That brings us in, finally, to see that he exhorts deceivers. He exhorts deceivers. We come to verse 27 and 28. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the woman that bare thee in the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. This woman, standing in the crowd, perhaps taken by the genius of Christ or the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, her focus turns then to the one that bare him. And she says, How blessed is the womb that bare thee! How blessed is that one that brought you into this world! But in drawing attention to her, Jesus says, No, that's not, that's not real blessing. Oh, we know that she was highly favored. Mary was. It's not like there isn't a certain amount of truth contained in this expression that the woman gives. Mary was favored, but, but the blessing, the real blessing is not in bringing Christ into the world. The blessing is this, to hear the Word. Oh, just, just to hear the Word. That's a blessing. That is a blessing. But it isn't sufficient. There has to be the doing of it, the keeping of it. Hear the Word of God and keep it. So Christ takes the opportunity to clarify. He exhorts the deceivers. He underscores the simple fact. This is what it's about. Stop watching the miracles. Stop engaging with all the activities. Stop missing the point. If you want to be blessed, if you want the favor of God, if you want deliverance from Satan, hear the word and keep it. That's, that's what we're called to. And this is the whole work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Really how he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? With the illustration of building the house upon the sand or upon the rock. The one who builds upon the sand is the one that hears the word but doesn't keep it. The one who builds upon the rock is the one who hears the word and keeps it. That's the distinction. That's what makes the difference. Jesus says those are the blessed people. Those are the blessed people. So Christ here... He is very direct, very direct, and yet in his directness, it is so merciful because it's clarifying, isn't it? Oh, they're standing there, this mixed multitude watching on, filled with all sorts of distorted ways of looking at what's happening, and he just clears it up. He clears it up. And he concludes here in this scene with such plain language. Hear the word and keep it. There could be no better place to end tonight then. Hear the word and keep it. Our Lord Jesus has come into this world that he might destroy the works of the devil. There is power to overcome. And if you're here tonight and you feel that oppression of the enemy, I don't know in what way you feel that oppression, but you're, you're aware of oppression. You're aware of it, pulling on your life, pulling into sin, making you think wrongly, erroneously, unhealthily. 
Your life is under a control that is not, put it this way, you don't feel free. If you were to describe your existence now, you would not say, I am free. Well, Christ came to make that a reality. He came so that you might sense freedom, real freedom. So that while the strong man comes into the life and dominates, and he does everything necessary to keep you at peace, you know what's wonderful? As soon as you begin to sense that you're no longer at peace, God is at work. When sinners who were for years content with their sin and their activity and their irreligiosity or perhaps even their religion, but it's no longer bringing them contentment, that disturbance is the finger of God. It's unsettling them. And they begin searching and begin inquiring. And some of you can testify that this was your own experience. You were quite content. You were at peace. You were in the palace of the strong man. But then the Lord Jesus Christ came and he began to disturb. And you began to seek. You began to be interested. You began to listen to things before you didn't listen to. And you heard the Word of God and finally, finally you said, no, I don't want just to hear it. I want to keep it. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Be my God. Be my Redeemer. Be my one mediator between God and men. Oh, let me see the glory of your cross let me bow before your throne. Let me worship all your work. What you've accomplished there on Calvary was for me. And I hear that word and I keep it. I want to keep it. I want to keep it. I want to make it the very substance of my living. I want it to be the reason why I live. I want to say with Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to gather with you, Lord, I want to preach him to dying men. I want my words and my lips to be used so that I can gather in so that others realize that as they live under the strong man, there's one stronger than he. I want them to know. Beloved, this, there's no neutrality. There's no standing as a Christian in some dull form it lets you just exist, marveling at the work of Jesus Christ. It thrusts you into action. You hear the word, you keep it. You keep it. How do you keep it? Oh, by the grace, the grace that he gives to your heart, the grace, the grace of repentance. Ah, for he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the grace comes in to say, yes, yes, that's true. And I keep that, and I maintain that, and it never changes because he that says that he has no sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. And so I keep the Word. I'm not against the Word. I'm not saying my salvation has eradicated all sin from my life. I keep the Word. And all the blessed grace of faith to be able to rest and trust in Him, to see the glories of the sufficiency of His work, and to keep it. Yes, to keep it always before me, ever, ever in my clutches. It's the very thing I'm resting in, always, the work of Christ. So I want to gather. I want to gather with Him. Do you want to gather with Him, do you? Are you trying to? Are you with Christ, are you? really with Christ? Listen. Sometimes I wonder, 
what it, take, what it would take to get through to those of you yet to be found in Christ. What would it take? If you're not with them, you're against them. You talk about cutting through religious jargon and fakery. If you're not with me, you're against me. So where are you? You trying to be Pilate? Trying to wash your hands? Trying to say, I don't really want to put him on the cross. But you're not so opposed to putting him on the cross that you're willing to be mocked and feel the anger and wrath of others for it. You try to wash your hands. But as one of the old hymns puts it, neutral you cannot be. trust the Lord will speak to your heart. I trust no one here. No one. I mean no one. Children. Children. You can't be neutral. You have to be with Christ. Are you with Christ? Let's bow together in prayer. You'll stand before him one day and you'll give account of what you did with his words. You've heard them time and time again. You've heard them. What will you do with Jesus, which is called Christ? Are you with him? Are you with him? If you need help, and let me underline, you don't need my help. Where you are now, you can throw yourself at the mercy of God, plead forgiveness of all your sins, and say, Lord Jesus, that's it. This is it. I'm giving myself to you. If you need any help, I'd be glad to talk with you, open the Word of God, and pray with you. Lord, please let not any be lost. I pray that you'll gather in young and old. I pray that those who have sought to fight conviction for years would be overcome, as well as those that may be feeling that conviction for the very first time. Have mercy, we pray.
Bless us. Let not our fellowship be a distraction to those that need not the fellowship of men, but need the fellowship with God. But do be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food provided. God, help us. Help us to gather. Help us to gather with Thee. Help us to do Thy work. Help us to hear Thy word and keep it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.